Hello and welcome to episode four of the Journey DXB podcast with here. That's me, eight at Nate's DXB. Um, today I'm here with Philip and Matt and we're going to be talking about one of the biggest industries here in the UAE, in Dubai, uh, and what it's all about, the construction industry. Welcome, Philip. Welcome, Matt. Hello. Hi. How are you, How you doing? doing? Thanks, Thanks for coming on. Um, so... Obviously, Matt, I know you for quite a long time. Yeah. Um, so he's seen uh, the, the the best and worst of me, <laughs> uh, and he's introduced me to Philip as well here. And you guys are doing some pretty cool stuff in the construction industry. Um, obviously, it's it's essentially what Dubai is built on, right? It's built on you know we 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 go out there. We've got the Burj Khalifa. We've got all these high rise buildings. We've got more skyscrapers than anywhere else in the world. Um, but you guys are kind of going to tell us and give us a bit more information on how that all happens and how that all comes about, right? So as we can, yeah. Yeah. So, like, how do we get from, you know, ground up, nothing there, sand pit to eight hundred meter buildings? Actually, it starts probably a lot earlier than the ground up. Yeah. All right. First of all, there has to be a vision. Okay. You know, the rulers of Dubai and Abu Dhabi and all of the Emirates have had a vision maybe 20 years ago now that they wanted to diversify their, their income. They recognised that fossil fuels would eventually not be a sustainable income uh, and they chose tourism. Um, Dubai, obviously, previously was a very small city. Um, so when the vision is realised, um, the government would work with consultants and engineers to, to look at a 20 or 30 year plan, how you build a city from scratch. Okay. And um, in doing that, Experts uh, come across, um, we do what we call feasibility studies, is to look at what you want to build and how you want to build it, what's it going to cost, what income will it generate. And once you've established that vision, you bring in consultants who will design it for you, contractors who will build it for you. And Matt and I would generally be working with those contractors and developers once projects are funded and go to the ground, and that's when the fun starts. Yeah. Right, okay, so, once, so basically once it's given the green light, you guys come in and make it happen. Yeah. yeah, to a certain extent. I mean, uh, there's an awful lot of stuff goes on in the background, even to you, after getting the green light to then going through the design process. I mean, mm -hmm. you've got, um, as Phil was saying, there's the feasibility studies, but you also have to go and get permissions, permits. You have to check out the sites, the boundaries of the sites, what's existing there. Uh, and I mean, there's been plenty of projects in this region which have been stopped even at that point because, you know, something's been found on the site and they've realised they can't. The campus, we've been involved in, in several projects where the site boundaries all had to shift because of something they find and everybody goes back to scratch again. So particularly in this part of the world, interestingly, one of the things that can stop a construction project and will stop it outright is an architectural find. Yeah. Go to the site, there might be an old well, there might be a graveyard, there might be some site of significant historical value and that's enough to, to stop anyone from building on that area. So there's, there's me always thinking that when these buildings just stop, it's because they've run out of money. It's not just that. It's several different reasons. No? That's generally the case. <laughs> That's the majority of the cases, yes, right? Yes, yeah. yes. But occasionally it happens for, for other reasons. I mean, there's a big plot in uh, up at Jumeirah there where a whole big section of ground is marked off as an archaeological site, and that was found through construction. Wow. How cool is that? So, like, you're making this sound like this is... I'm already, like, we've only been chatting two minutes and my mind's already <laughs> scratching itself. How many people are... Let's say if you've just got a block of flats, like one bit, one of these buildings. How many people are involved from start to finish in a project like that then? Well, it's, it's, 
there's there's two different factors. There's the labourers that would be employed to build it, and then there's the project management staff. Project management staff would include the client's team, the people that are funding the money, basically. Then there'll be a consultant who's going to design that building and a contractor who's going to build it. I mean, it wouldn't be unusual for maybe four or 500 staff to be involved in a significant size project. Mm. It can be thousands. thousands. I'm working at Midfield Terminal, and at, at, at its peak, it would have had tens of thousands of labourers and thousands of management staff. Wow. They can get significant size and complexity. They're small cities. Wow. Okay, so... Obviously, both you guys are entrepreneurs. You have your own business in, in this sector. This already sounds very complex. Um, let's start with you, Philip. Tell us about your journey, how you got here, and what it is you do in this process um, with construction. Well, in terms of my journey, my journey probably started in around 2010. I'd been here for a couple of years uh, at that point. That was in the middle of the economic downturn, uh, and I was working for an international consultancy, um, who were badly affected by the downturn. They got rid of a lot of staff. They didn't do it in a particularly nice way, but I was retained. Um, and I stuck with that company for a couple of years. But because of the downturn, the my job role had been watered down. I wasn't challenged anymore. And I'd been thinking really since about 2011, 12, that I wanted to um, have a business where I'd go out and service clients. My particular discipline, you can do that. You can go out and spend a week or a month or a year with a client. And... Back in 2011, 12, 13, um, the, part of the reason I didn't st start my own business at the time was because when I did the research online, what did, how, how would that work? Who do I need to speak to? It only takes five minutes online looking at various options for you to become overwhelmed yeah. with understanding, am I a free zone company or a mainland company? Who can I employ? Who can I not employ? Yep. And I put it off quite simply for that reason. And, and only last year did I find one of these startup companies that will guide you through that process. Yep. You pay good money for it. But essentially they deal with all the complicated uh, parts of that, um, of, of that starting up process. Yeah. And you know, here I am 14 months later, I'm still in business. So for now at least we're doing something right. Awesome. So, what, what is your part of the, the process? What do you do in, in your in your role then? So, we we're project management consultants. Um, so, we can work with a developer, which might be the government, for example. We can work with the design consultant or the project manager, or we might work with the building contractor. Mm -hmm. But essentially, when you are on the ground managing a construction project, it's hugely compli complicated. You've got a lot of parties involved. There's significant amounts of money involved. But at its most basic. A building, you know, you talked about a, a, an office block, for example. That's a million-piece jigsaw, and all of that needs to be coordinated amongst potentially dozens of companies mm -hmm. and thousands of people. So in my line of work, which is project controls and planning, we would help, for example, developers schedule out their work. What does, what does the next five years look like mm -hmm. in order for us to go from the ground and to an open building? So this is what operational kind of procedure, would you say? It's like, are, you like, are you like the chief operating officer, in a way, of the build, how the building's going to grow and how it's going to get there? That's, that's partly it. So, you know, there is the, 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 the technical schedule planning, which is to work out how a building contractor, who might be employing 15 or 20 subcontractors, is going to organise his site and his work to make sure that all the right pieces arrive at the right time mm -hmm. and get installed in the right way and in line with all the client's expectations and the regulatory requirements. There's an awful lot of regulations which dictate what you can and can't do. Um, that's the detailed planning, but if you take one step above, you may well be working with a client on his strategic planning, which is 
for example, uh, the ruler of Dubai had a vision. Mm-hmm. He has a sum of money he wants to expend. Mm-hmm. And he went from a plot of desert to the city that you now see. That is all carefully planned by consultants. Yeah. Um, and that will be looking at what are we going to build, where are we going to build it, what's it going to cost, and who are we going to use. That's the, t- the strategic plan. So you can be at a high level or you can be right down in the, in the nuts and bolts. Okay, right. So, Matt, I know obviously your story a little bit better, but let's tell the audience about it. Um, tell us about your journey, how you got here. Um, yours has been a... Ver- you've had some rocky rides along the way. Um, tell us about it and, and how your little piece of the puzzle fits in and how important it is in what you do. Well, uh, thanks for calling it important. Um, <laughs> I, do, I do like to think that it fills a bit of a niche, but... Uh, yeah, so I, I, as you know, Nathan, we basically both started here full time around about the same time. Yeah. Uh, back in the back in 2014, um, I had been over here briefly back in 2010, um, and eventually came back to work for the the same company at that stage. Yeah. Um, I was here 2014 through to 2019. Worked with the same company. They they looked after me very well, but got to the point where I wanted to do something different, something slightly not in line with the way my previous company was going. So I went my own way. And um, then, yeah, so I do something very similar to Phil. I deal with the, the contract aspect of the, the project. Okay. Um, while Phil's managing the, the time and the, the durations and how everyone's going to be sequenced and working, what I'm doing is checking that everybody understands what it is they're signing up to do that they understand what their obligations are under the contract, that they've agreed to sign to either build it or design it or do whatever they're going to do. And then the second part of that would be then checking that everybody complies with those obligations and following through if they don't. Um, because with all contracts, and it's not just in the construction industry, as you as you well know, yeah. uh, every contract has obligations and entitlements and there are consequences if you don't follow through in your obligations. Um, and how often does that happen where people don't follow through on their obligations? <laughs> Unfortunately, um, much too, far too often, far too often. And uh, it's, that was one of the uh, ways that Phil and I actually uh, became quite close was we were dealing a lot in the, the sort of disputes for time and, and additional delays on projects. And Phil was doing the, the time aspect, I was doing the contractual aspect. Um, so we worked very closely, and that's how we ended up getting getting quite friendly. And then um, we then saw that whenever Phil set up his company in two thousand mid two thousand nineteen, and I set up mine at the end of two thousand nineteen, we realised that actually we can work very closely together. So like in peas a, in a pod. In a lot yeah. of yeah. Well, we need each other because yeah. project management within construction is is multidisciplined. So I can only provide so many of, my, of the services, and I don't want to grow to a team of 20 or 25. I'm, I'm an entrepreneur who's looking at, I'm quite risk averse by my very nature. Yeah. I could take on people that, that provide contract services and QSing services, but it's much better for me as a small business um, to decrease my risk and to engage with other people like Matt who can plug gaps into my business, um, which is a significantly less, uh, less risky prospect for me. And it's a good way for us to collaborate and to, and to 
be exposed um, to other clients because the more you work with other small consultants that are doing what you're doing, they're, yeah. they're, they're out there with their clients and they might help you. It's about working together, isn't it? You're, you're more, more likely to succeed if we work together. 100%. Yeah. S- just so that, that, so I'm getting this in my mind. So we've, we, we've, we're looking at this project, the project gets agreed, you come in, uh, Philip, and, you, and you, 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 you set it out, this is how it's going to work, but the problem with the industry is... People aren't, you, you, you've got this great vision, you put it all together, organised it all together, but the problem with the industry is then it's not necessarily getting done because people aren't fulfilling on their obligations and that's where yeah, you I get mean, involved. Let's, let's be clear, I mean, construction contracts are very complicated. They're yeah. hundreds of pages deep and on any given project you, there, there might be 10 or 15 of these things. So every party comes to the, to, to the show wanting to be part of a team to get this job done, but ultimately everybody is a company in their own right and they're going to look after themselves. Yeah. So projects do go wrong almost inevitably, certainly when you're trying to fast track a project. Mm-hmm. One, of the, one of the, you know, part of what's going on in Dubai is everything's happening very quickly, mm-hmm. which is great. But when things happen quickly, something has to give. It will be time, cost or quality. Yeah. And time often suffers. Um, so part of our responsibility, certainly part of Matt's responsibility, is to make sure that when disputes are arising, and, and you know, the word dispute is quite loaded. That's quite a serious word. Yeah. When... I don't know what the, the, the word would be, but when change is happening and can't, parties simply can't agree amongst themselves what their entitlements are, yeah. that's where Matt and I would be supporting um, either party and trying to work out who's, wh- whose obligation is what and whose right is I what. Supp- I, I, I kind of understand what you're saying here because obviously as entrepreneurs and what I'm finding obviously with a startup company is that I have to pivot all the time. And just like that, I have to pivot. I have to say, I can't... The numbers don't add up. I need to change. I need to move this mm-hmm. way. I need to change. I need to move this way. That's easy for an entrepreneur because it's just me that's making the decisions. Correct. But if you've got, you're saying there's four or 500 people involved, yep. lots of different contractors, and you want to pivot, you've got to get everyone on board yep. to pivot. Yep. And that is that where the problems set in? Would you, is that what you're trying to explain there? Um, well, so as, as Phil touched on there, at the, at the start of a project when everybody's signing up to the contracts and they're agreeing to the timeframes, everybody at that point, they're coming in in good faith and, and much of those good faith gets batted about in the same way that Phil says dispute is a loaded term used a lot over here. Good faith is also a loaded term used over here. But genuinely what we find is the parties are coming to the table at the start in good faith. Everybody wants to get the job going, get it done, and do a good job on time, on budget. That's everybody's main main aim. Yeah, of course. But things happen. You know, I mean, look at look at 2020. What's happened in 2020? Nobody yep. could have predicted, and a pandemic hit, and it's just knocked everybody. And I mean, you can have everything from a pandemic to literally a cargo ship gets delayed in a port somewhere and now a piece of the puzzle on a construction site isn't there to be installed when it needs to be installed. I mean, it can be anything from global pandemics down to there's literally something hasn't arrived on time on site to be installed and now everything else that comes after it is being held up. I never thought of it that way, but yeah, that makes sense. So, So it doesn't have to be that somebody's done something intentionally to mess it up or somebody's not acting in good faith. These can be things that are, for want of a better word, force majeure. Because let's face it, force majeure can mean a whole host of things. Mm. But it can be as simple as, you know, a piece of paper was missing when somebody filed a, a, a document and now that document's on hold. It doesn't get approved. 
because that doesn't get approved, nothing can proceed further. And it was simply a mistake. Do you know what I mean? Wow, and that's going to hold up the whole The, the, the whole problem building, is that yeah. small mistake of that one piece of paper not being in that submission to the authorities has now cost millions of dirhams per day in delays right. to all parties on the project. So now who's going to pay for that? That's the problem. Right, makes sense. So... And that's when things start getting sticky. So we talk about the pandemic, and you guys both set up your companies in 2019. <laughs> yeah. Um, tell me, as entrepreneurs, and you know, I, I've experienced this myself, the ups and downs. Tell us about your journey. Let's start with you, Philip. What are the pros and cons so far? Well, with, with respect to the pandemic, I think the story that I would tell of my business is probably different than almost anybody else's. Um, the, the pandemic influenced negatively the construction industry, and unfortunately a lot of consultants and contractors, big established contractors, uh, got rid of a lot of staff. Mm. But that's not to say that they didn't still have to deliver work. So yeah. companies, consultants and contractors, getting rid of their, their full-time staff, still needing to deliver work. And luckily for us, that's where consultants step in. That's, that's yeah. why we're there. We can, we can offer anything from an hour's service to a year's service. So actually... As unfortunate as it was, and I wish it would never happen, but in that early coronavirus period when companies were looking at their overheads and trying to cut as many as they could, um, they turned to companies like ours. And actually, I've picked up more work during the coronavirus period, uh, coronavirus period um, than I have in the other eight months of my first year. And we wow. made more money in, in, in that period. Now, like I say, I'd rather it didn't happen that way. Yeah. But I guess one of the advantages of being a, a small um, consultancy is that we're we're flexible. Yeah, of course. So we can move very quickly, we can mobilise very quickly, and we can attend to our clients' needs very quickly. Yeah. And that's what happened in the sort of March-April period. When there's all that uncertainty, mm -hmm. um, consultants can be there to plug that gap. So we, we, we were very lucky in that respect. And um, So the, the positives is more business, actually. It's worked out well for you guys. What about the negatives? Negatives, I mean, Matt and I were talking... Um, not just in respect of this podcast and, and what subjects might come up, but, you know, problems we're experiencing right now. For small companies like ours, cash flow yeah. is, 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 is king. Yeah. And, you know, our business models are very simple. We sell people by the hour or by the month. Yeah. We don't have supply chains or warehouses to, to manage. Um, so for what should be a very straightforward um, business model and I, I, I'm at any time dealing with maybe three or four clients I'm still spending a day or two of my week um, dealing with establishing contracts and trying to trying to get in, into contract with clients and then basically chasing payments mm. um, and that's incredibly frustrating because yeah Matt talked about good faith as consultants we have to go forward on good faith there isn't enough time in our assignments to wait a week or a month yeah. to get money out to us often we've done work before any money's been received um, and unfortunately, my experience is that not everybody does act in good faith. Unfortunately, there are individuals who don't. There are companies that don't. Don't get me wrong. I mean, we're probably at 20% of my clients um, I, I, I've had significant troubles with, yeah. which is non-payment or, 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 or deductions requested after you've finished the services or payments that come six months late. Um, so wow. from, a, from an entrepreneurial perspective, it's very difficult yeah, to plan your Yeah, that's months. a nightmare. Six months. Uh, if, if you get it at all sometimes. Wow. And, and, the, and there's very little recourse for us without starting to commit huge 
sums of so money. You, did you think this is uh, is that a, a problem just limited to your industry, or do you think that's a, a problem overall in the in, in you know yeah. the whole of the ecosystem? That's 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 a problem for small businesses. I mean, since I started this, uh, since I started MLCS last year. Um, I've been doing a lot of reading and, and following things on LinkedIn for small businesses and and the most common complaint you see coming up time and time again is the client's not paying my invoice, how do I go about getting the money back? Yeah. And in this region especially, now I know there are changes that have been made um, over the last couple of years um, and uh, I, I don't know whether you can name names here or not, but in the DIFC small Claims court is a very new thing that's, well, very new as in a couple of years old, but yep. that's now sort of fast-tracking the process for a lot of small claims, claims yep. under 500,000. Now, the only, the only issue there is, and to my naivety at the start, mm-hmm. I didn't know that you needed to have a, a, an agreement by both parties to follow through with the, the IFC small claims. So in my early contracts, I hadn't included it. Fortunately, some of my earlier clients have failed to pay and I'm now having faced with having to go through the more arduous, more expensive and, and definitely the more long drawn out process of hitting the, the main courts of the UAE to try and recover that money from those so clients. You, it, so it, by, the, by the tonality of everything here, it, it really seems the biggest problem as, as you know, small companies is... As well, is, to, is the is the is the payment issues right now? Well, to, yes. to be fair, yes, that and that, to be honest, that while a lot of companies are using the pandemic as an excuse, yeah, it's been inherent in the industry for years over here. So certainly, it's, since as long as I've been here, it's been a problem. Um, maybe the pandemic has exaggerated it to an extent, but I definitely know of a lot of instances where it's been used as an excuse rather than it's been the actual reason. And I think, you know, what exacerbates the problem is that by the, by the nature of the services we sell, we sell, like I say, hours. Mm. So it's not like a physical commodity that you've sold someone they haven't paid for and you can take back. Yeah. Our time is expended. The client's had his benefit. Yeah. And now our ability to go and chase that money down is... It's not limited, as Matt's described. Yeah. There are options, but... <laughs> We're not talking about tens of millions of dirhams that we're earning. We're into the tens of thousands, and if we're lucky, hundreds of thousands. But when chasing that money, which might take a year or 18 months, and that's the reality, starts to become 25 or 50% of what you're chasing, it it can be a better decision just to let it go. So how do you... uh, Obviously, this is about mitigating risk within your business. So how do you overcome these problems? Well, our opportunity, I think, to mitigate the risks are relatively limited. Yeah. Um, so, for example, what you know, what I've certainly started to do on Matt's advice, because he's a contractual expert, is change some of the terms and conditions in my contracts. So, for example, we might ask for an increased level of advance payment. So before we even hit the ground, we want 25 or 50% of the fee. We might ask for reduced timeframes for payment. We might typically be 14 or 21 days. We might ask for seven. For me, the, the problem with doing that is, if we're certainly if we're engaging with a new client, if your first proposal to a client includes all these really restrictive terms that yeah. I want half the money and you'll pay me in seven days, that spooks them. So you're trying to find a balance between what can we both agree where I'm happy to proceed and he's happy to proceed. Um, and that is a fine line and it's different for every client. But I, I would speak for myself and I think probably for Matt, we, we, we always end up proceeding with contracts that we are still not 
entirely comfortable with, but as generally the smaller party in the agreement and we want the work, it's that's part of being an entrepreneur, right? At some point you've got to take st- step forward and, and say, well, I'll take the risk because the rewards are worth it. Makes sense. Makes sense. So would you say so far your entrepreneurial journey has been rewarding? Uh, not financially rewarding yet. Um, let's see. I'm about to close out my first year uh, this month. Okay. And I'll have basically, I'll have turned a profit, um, but I've still got an awful lot of invoices remain well overdue. Okay. <laughs> um, I've basically, at this point, received about fifty-five <clears throat> percent of my invoiced amounts for the year. And some of those date back as far as January, pre-pandemic. Wow. People weren't wanting to pay even then. So, so they, take, they take the service, they take the information. That's what I was saying, that once, they've, once we've provided the service, because <coughs> generally you can only charge so much as an advance, especially on services. And yeah, even, even, on, even on when we do deliverable documents as well, you, you get an advance, but you have to try and make sure that the advance is going to cover your costs mm-hmm. because you... By the time you get to the end of the document, you'll have 25, 30% of invoices for that amount, which the client will just go, well, I've got the document now. I don't, I don't need to pay you. You explained now this to me. Not, don't get me wrong. This isn't happening all the time. Yeah. This, but as a small, as Phil was saying, cash flow is king. So yeah. when it does happen, it really hurts. You explained you know something I mean? to me like this before. I remember you saying how... Um, and I, I'm assuming this is in, in the same context, is that you're having to almost realise a larger proportion of what would be considered normal is not going to get paid. And that reflects all the way through the construction industry in pricing, is where the, the, the prices are higher than what they would be in potentially other countries well, because yeah, of I, the I non-payment. So, so here's Matt and I sat down at the bottom of the industry, but that story that we're telling I think is true right to the top. Yeah. You have clients who fund jobs to contractors, contractors who employ subcontractors, subcontractors who maybe employ us. Yeah. Um, no one's really getting their money on time. And, and, and you know, let's be frank, it's, it's difficult sometimes when, when we talk about tens of millions or billions of dollars. Um, money doesn't move that, uh, that, that quickly. Yeah. Um, what's difficult for, for Matt and I, I think, is firstly, Matt and I are both client-facing. We yeah. don't have finance teams, HR teams, procurement teams. That's us. Yeah. And so we're small enough that we, as individuals, are also out doing the work and yeah. earning the money, but increasingly having to spend, like I say, maybe a day or two of our weeks trying to recover money. Yeah. So now I'm effectively losing money by not being in front of this client today, but, but by chasing this guy up. So when you don't know when the money's coming in, uh, you know, you hope that the money will all come. You might take a discount at the end of it, but when you don't know, and yet you have to pay your salaries, yeah. the salary has to go out. Someone's checking mm-hmm. that. Yeah. But, yeah, when you look at your next three months and six months, it's easy to panic because you look, oh, I've got to pay this guy that amount and I've got my rent to pay. Um, and so you're, you're desperately trying to keep these clients on board. Yeah. You're trying to maintain good relationships with them. Firstly, because you want more work from them. Yeah. But secondly, if you alienate them too much, you you really risk antagonising them and you might never see your, your money. So it's it's difficult, but it's also wow. quite fun at times. It's, it's, it's not even as Phil says. It's, we're selling services, we're selling day rates, hour rates, whatever. You take a, you've, you've sold a client a day 
of your time. Yeah. Okay. You've gone and done that day. So the client has had that one day. Mm-hmm. And then you take another day of your time chasing up that payment. Now the client, now it's cost you two days to get that one day's pay. Mm. But on top of that, with things like being in, being in a business, you've got that. It's every three months in this country. Yeah. Well, if my client hasn't paid me for six, I've now paid the VAT. That but is he a, hasn't paid a, me. That's a big problem, yeah. The, you, you have to pay your VAT for the invoice and it's come, amount. It's coming out of my own, yeah. my own pocket yeah. because the client has decided they don't want to pay me for six yeah. months. It, it's a, that's a big problem, and particularly for you know smaller businesses like, like, like ourselves where it needs to be paid. If it's not paid, yeah. you've, you've got to pay out other things. And if you're the one, you know, someone that's acting in good faith and you're at that other parties are, mm-hmm. then obviously that adds even more complexities and difficulties. The van man doesn't want to hear that, oh, I don't have the payments yet. Uh, you know, it'll be six months before <laughs> I get from my client. And I think that's been part of the learning curve. You know, when I, mm-hmm. when I started my business, if I'm honest, you know, what I'm good at, what I'm an expert in is my discipline, yeah. not in running a business. And I, I sort of assume, well, how difficult can this be? Right, I've got to find clients, <laughs> yeah. I've got to charge them for work and I'll get money into my bank account. And after three months, when my client, that's uh, your pardon, my accountant, phoned me up and said, right, we've done your, done your statements, you owe X amount in VAT. I said, well, I didn't anticipate that. Why am I paying the VAT? I haven't been paid for it. And then he explained how this all works. And my negative cash flow at that point just got a lot worse. So I'm learning every day uh, about what it means right. to run a business. But do you not feel that, you know, yeah, by doing so and taking that jump in, into being an entrepreneur, you, 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 you know, you're having to start to learn all these different parts. When you, I think, yeah. you know, for me, when I was in my... In doing my job previously, I was a financial advisor. Okay, I knew the finance part. I, this is what I need to do. Alas, that's it. The moment you take on becoming a business owner, you know you've got to know the job of everyone. Yes, yeah. everyone. So <laughs> you're, you're, you're the working, tea boy, the cleaner. Yeah, you're everybody. Absolutely everyone. Oh. So yeah, and you so you, you forget about that. Like when you're working in that corporate company <laughs> and there's 25 staff, you know, and you just think, oh, okay, I'll go and do my own thing. It's you know that one job. But no, you need to know those the 25 jobs of the 25 people that were yeah. at the company before and then build out. Exactly. And the thing is, your salary just magics its way into your bank account at the time, at the end of each month when you're working for another company. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Now I'm the one that's having to go through the... I mean, I've recently just done the, the fought over the WPS process, yeah. trying to get that set up, you know, for the online banking to pay salaries. It was a nightmare. It took me three weeks before I eventually got it. Understood that today, yeah. Out. And you're, whereas before, you're sitting there and your salary just magics its way into do you your not, bank. Do you account. not think it, that whole process in doing that, it, it makes you appreciate appreciate things more and you feel like you're growing as a person more because, you know, you, you see yourself actually, you realise that when you're in just a normal job working for someone, you're actually not growing. You're yeah. actually at one point and you're going to start, yes, you might know a little bit more in your industry, you know, you, you know, you might gain more knowledge in that particular, you know, sector over time. But actually, as a as a complete a complete player, shall mm-hmm. we say, yeah. you don't really realise how much you know how much more you can grow until you start doing it on your own. I think that I think that's a good point, and I think um, growth isn't necessarily related to revenue. Yeah, the point you're making, I think, is is right. Where if I look at a second year of business, which hopefully I will complete. Um, even if I've earned the same amount of revenue or profit between the two years, 
um, what I will have done is grown as, a, as an individual and as a business because we learned. Yeah. In the second year, I'm not quite as naive. I've learned some of those lessons. So I'll, I'll, I won't compare necessarily financials. I'll look at how I handle my clients and how my relationships went yeah. and see if I'm growing in that way, and I hopefully I will be. Do you feel that actually when you first go into that entrepreneurial journey, I think society tells us, oh, yeah, you're going to be a businessman. You might end up earning more money. And you realise over time actually... Yeah, yeah, obviously you, you want to have that freedom and still be able to earn, but actually it becomes more about the process rather than the earning. And you, you start to appreciate things more and you've st- stopped forgetting about, yes, I mean, we're talking about payments and about, you know, payments need to come in to make the business run. Well, that's not talking about money for yourself. That's talking about fuel to fuel the business, mm-hmm. right? That's, it's just fuel. Money yeah. essentially is just, it's just the fuel to f- fuel the business. I feel like... Is it, would you say that as time goes on, you start to appreciate the other things? Like you just said there, you, you just say, okay, well, if I make the money, the, the same amount of money next year, actually, I don't mind that because I know I've moved forward. But would have you told yourself that 12 months ago if you said, oh, I'm going to make the same amount of money the year after? I wouldn't, I, you know, it's... No, I, I, I don't think I would. I think when, you, when, you, when I'm setting up the business, you know, I, I had... If I look at why I set up the business, part of it was to give myself more freedom and flexibility during the day. So that's non-financial, but it's, it's, it's a factor when I will weigh up whether this was successful, mm. is how much more time did I get to spend with my family. Um, you know, I get, to, I get to choose now who I work with and when I do my work. Um, I wouldn't necessarily have thought 12 months ago that it wouldn't bother me if my revenues were the same, mm-hmm. um, because I can now, here we are 14 months later, that journey you're talking about and the things I've learned are as valuable almost as the money that you might put into your uh, into your bank account. That's growth. That's growth. Yeah. That's growth. And so, do you... Well, you know, for me, I, you know, this, I don't know what you, you guys think of this, is I think that you start to appreciate a lot of, a lot of different things uh, that like growth within yourself more when you go on these kind of journeys, whereas when you just are working for someone, you actually just think about the money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. With that. I mean, you just when, when you're just, when you're just working for a company and there's no passion, it's nothing of yours, and you're stuck in this box realistically because that's what you are when you work at someone else. You do a job, you complete the job, you get paid for it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what else? Okay, you might learn more over time, like I said, but you're still in that box. I think, you know, perhaps once you have you go into that entrepreneurial journey, you're opening up that box, aren't you? Mm-hmm. And you're you're seeing all the benefits of. Something outside of just the financial side of things? Yeah, I mean, so I've, I've done both here. I did six years, uh, like I say, with a big international consultant. And I think what in particular happens in this region, rather than, in, you know, for example, maybe in the UK where I've also worked, is you are a commodity to companies here. You're a, yeah. You have a dollar value. When yeah. I worked for that consultancy, I was on projects, as were another 200 people. And when, when the financial downturn happened... Those people were of no value to the company, and they were out the door almost overnight. Yeah. And they weren't treated particularly well. That frustrated me. Mm-hmm. Um, but for another year, I did sit there, and it was about the money. Mm. I turn up here, I'm being told to sit at this desk, press these buttons, and I will earn money. And I eventually become frustrated with that and bored with that, quite frankly. So this this is a whole new way to not just look at work, but look at life. Life, yes. It's a 24-hour-a-day commitment you make. Yeah. And there are some very difficult times, which you've all experienced, but... Yeah. There are also brilliant times. Everything we're talking about is good fun. That journey is good fun to walk, even even when you're chasing money and you're a bit nervous about paying salaries. Personally, I, 
you know, I, I, if someone said to me, would you do it again? With all the problems that you've had, I'd say, absolutely, sign me up. Amazing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, it's, it's been... Yeah, it's been... I'm, I'm enjoying it. There are days when I'm sitting in the office uh, with Phil and I'm just so frustrated. <laughs> yeah. But overall, am I glad I did it? Yes. Is it like, you know, you're at a theme park when you go on... When you're younger, you're like, oh, that roller coaster, or I'm a bit scared to go on that roller coaster. And you get on the roller coaster, and you actually get the, by the end of it, like I want to do that again. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm worried that maybe there's people sitting watching this who have been thinking about setting up a business and were a little nervous, and maybe we've made them more nervous. You know, we spent a bit of time there talking about the concerns and the problems. Yeah. Actually, this last bit of the discussion I think is the most valuable that Matt and I and yourself all made a conscious decision at some point to leave yeah. the safety. Yeah. net that we lived in yeah. and to and, and to go out and, and, and give it a go for ourselves and it sounds like all three of us would say take that leap yeah, take sure. that first step and, and, and I was always comforted by the safety net that you know what if this doesn't work yeah. I, ju I just go back yeah. I go back to how I was that, that, that safety net will be there but I don't see myself going back soon or yeah. hopefully ever. ever again yeah that's, <laughs> I, that's exactly the same attitude I'm like why would you you know why yeah. would you because yeah, I think that all links to the growth aspect because uh, I think it all comes down to once you you take that leap and as long as you've got the mental capacity to, to power through it, you'll always find a way. Yeah. You'll find a way. And as you gain that experience, as we pick up new clients and include, increase our portfolio, we are more likely to be able to stay in business. You do a good job for a client. A lot of our clients are repeat business. Yeah. So once you start to see that happening, every month it gets a little easier and... Yeah, it's, it's been great fun so far, and long may that continue. Awesome. Philip, Matt, thank you so much today. Thanks for having me on. It's a great conversation. Much. Our pleasure. Cheers. Yeah. Thank you.